Hello and welcome to Live the African Dream podcast. My name is Eunice Ajim. I'm your host. And today we have Mark Klenner. He is the co-founder of GreenVC. GreenVC is an entirely remote venture capital training program intent on empowering the next generation of African-focused investors to take their first step as emerging VCs, angels, and ecosystem builders. Mark, it is so great to have you on the podcast today. Thanks for having me on, Eunice. Yeah, definitely. So, fun fact, um, just for any of the listeners listening out there, um, I actually hired three of uh, Green VC fellows. So, just so that you guys understand that, it's going to be an amazing uh, podcast today. And uh, Mark and the team at Green VC are doing amazing things. And I can't wait for us to discuss on what you guys are up to and just the whole African ecosystem as a whole. Absolutely, me too. I think you've been one of our biggest fans. So, thank you for your support. Yeah, definitely. Okay, well, Mark, let's just go right in. Um, I always start by just saying, give us your story, right? Like, how did you, how did you get involved with the African ecosystem? What was the influence and what has been your journey um, so far? Yeah, I think it's a pretty unusual one. It's a pretty crazy story, but uh, I assure you it doesn't have the same James Bond vibe that I'm going to make it out to seem. But perhaps for some of the listeners, it might be an interesting change from the usual. So on my end, I was born in Russia. I grew up with a Russian-Ukrainian family. So fun time to be alive today. But uh, moved over to the UK quite a few years ago around the financial crisis. Essentially, my whole family, we emigrated over for economic reasons and political reasons, essentially moving into the UK, hoping to get a better life here. Since that point, I went up to Edinburgh, finished my studies there, and since then have been jumping around, moving through the startup space, the consulting space, financial services, and finally venture capital on what I'm doing now. Now that transition, it's been a bit of a crazy one. I think for me, I, I never could have guessed or hoped or planned or even intended to work in the VCOP space. The only connection I even had was indirectly at some point in his career, my father had worked at the very first private equity firm that existed in the post-Soviet Union world of Eastern Europe. The firm had been very successful while it was still running. And at the time, to me, what it really showed was what can be done when the private sector plugs in where the government isn't doing what they're supposed to be doing. But the private sector really uplifts local businesses, supports innovation, and funds that innovation when the demand for funding is really great. And I recall seeing that, seeing growing up with that, seeing that as a kid, but it didn't quite resonate with me at the time. I didn't see this as something that I could see myself doing. Definitely didn't understand private equity, turnarounds, restructuring, all of these terms seemed completely out of the book. My father later moved into human rights and the world seemed even further and further away. And nobody else in my family even knew what financing or the financial services was as a sector. So it was a bit of a far-fetched dream. So I moved into consulting after graduating, and I think spending some time in consultancy definitely gave me that appreciation of problem solving and the founder dilemma. But yeah. I didn't really appreciate working with you know big firms, super large multinationals, as you tend to do in management and digital consulting, especially if you work in Western Europe. So eventually I left. I helped co-found a business that was essentially doing tech consulting, and it really scaled really well. 
We grew from a team of about four or five people when I joined to a team of 140 two years later by the time I had left. And on my end, it showed me what was possible if you have a lot of people focused on growth and who are really growing a business in an environment where the market really needs what you're doing. And I really mm -hmm. wanted that growth again. I wanted to be in that adrenaline rush you get, but I wanted to work with people who kind of knew what they were doing because, you know, working with friends, working with co-founders who you've known for many years, it's not always the same way of learning as you do in a new environment. So I jumped around. I moved in a couple of different startups. I spent a bit of time in Singapore, out of New York, out of parts of Eastern Europe. And for me, that really gave me an appreciation of how different each ecosystem was. And somehow, at one point, I found myself working consecutively at one and then another and then another founder who had been venture-backed. And I started thinking, what is it that makes these startups so interesting? What is the one consistent factor in the startups that I was working with? And it, often it was that venture element that was involved. I got a bit more involved. I started asking around. I pulled on every single string imaginable, asking everybody for an introduction, anybody for anything that could be useful. And eventually, I managed to break into venture building which would take me very quickly to the African continent. Now, the first time I got involved, I was working underneath the former CEO of Food Panda, a last mile logistics giant out of East Asia. And it really taught me the amazing potential of what you can do in convenience and consumer technology. So when that opportunity came up again through a venture studio that was affiliated with Jumia and several other major projects in West Africa, I took that on with both hands. I really wanted to see that exposure and I'd never gotten to work on the African continent before. Yeah. I would not be saying, you know, this is an overstatement when I say that it quite literally changed my life. I put away all of my consulting work. I think all of my friends pretty much uh, unintentionally got cut off from what I was doing. And they were like, wow, you're crazy. But I just decided I really loved working with some of the African entrepreneurs I was seeing, even while I was doing this work. And I thought, I want to do something on the continent opportunity came up we set up an impact accelerator that's mzz in case you've seen it and mm -hmm. we worked with that for about two years which then led us to what i'm doing now so because you can see this transition it's been a lot of this zigzag zigs and zagging across different markets different countries different sectors but it's in that process of these last few years since about 2016 through to today where first i worked in the venture side then i ran an accelerator that I realized that there was a bigger problem there, a bigger problem of a lack of funding, not so helping founders to prepare for pitching or supporting founders with resources or supporting founders with building, even though these are incredibly important ways of supporting the ecosystem, but there was an overriding lack of funding going towards African startups. Yeah. And I decided to tackle that head on. And that's how DreamVC really came about as an idea of an investor accelerator or a platform that trains aspiring investors and that's really what's kept me interested in the vc space on the continent wow what a beautiful story i think like what i should have mentioned at the beginning was if you're trying to break into the vc space this is the podcast for you and and what i mean by that is um i mean that there, there's so many opportunities in the vc space when people think about you know, breaking into VC, they always think, you know, is it that I become a fund manager? Do I just start angel investing, right? But no, you can actually build an amazing career um, uh, uh, and, you know, and just growing the VC space. But I don't think there's a lot of programs out there. Like 
which degree do you even go to school and say, okay, I'm going to go and do this degree and I'm going to get out of it and I'm going to become a venture capitalist. I don't think that like, I'm, I'm, there might be some specific programs out there, but for somebody that maybe has already gone to school um, and it's like, I want to support startup founders. I don't necessarily see myself starting a company. Um, I actually think that going through the Green VC program or um, any other programs out there that are helping you break into the space. And I don't know of many. So for any of the listeners out there, can you break down exactly what you guys do at Dream VC? And, yeah, and, absolutely. And I just want to mention that, and this is not just for people coming from a specific background, right? So you can also share a little bit of like the different backgrounds and like what, you know, some success stories um, of what those people are doing today. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think there's a couple of things to unpack here. First, I think you very correctly mentioned that there isn't one background for VC. The venture capital space changes because we, it needs to change since it's all about funding the next innovators, the next entrepreneurs out there. For investors to be efficient partners, for efficient investors investing in these startups, they need to empathize on a human level. That's why the VC and PE space is so human driven. But traditionally, VC and PE has been very monochrome, very simple. It's been predominantly US-based investors sitting out of New York, sitting out of Silicon Valley, maybe some British investors and European investors that dominated these markets, investing all over the world and using their insight in their home market to invest everywhere else. But that simply doesn't work. You've come to understand, and so have we, that working in any of the African markets is a challenge. There are many different business challenges that arise that are unique and very heterogeneous to that particular market. Understanding that, whether from the founder side or the investor side, is a challenge. That's something I will admit. It's definitely easier to do business sitting in London or in Hong Kong or in New York or in Texas as it is compared to sitting in Lagos or Abuja, Kigali, Kampala or anywhere else on the continent. So for us, I think it was that first realization that really drove us to set up DreamVC as a program that helps anybody from any working professional background who has a real interest, a real curiosity towards supporting startups to break into the venture world. And when I say venture world, I don't just mean, as you say, becoming an emerging manager or, for example, starting to invest your own personal money, because that's just two out of many, many different ways we can support startups. We can support startups as advisors, as mentors, as referees, as individuals who plug in and give valuable insights, for example, helping startups to access a particular market niche, helping them better sell their product in a particular country, helping them localize that product to a particular reality. All of these things, they're really, really important. And that just, you know, is still an understatement considering the plethora of roles in startup brokerage and other similar industries that support and enable the venture capital world to really thrive. That's what we really work on. The way we do that is essentially through a relatively accessible online program. We run online programs in a cohort-based approach, meaning that they have a start and end point, and we only run a finite number of programs every year. They are very exclusive, so we only ever work with a small batch of people at a given point in time, for example, 30 to 40 to 50 fellows per program. And we really commit our every blood, sweat and tear into working with these people to make sure that we can enable them to be the kinds of leaders we want to see in the space. The kind of investors that will not just go and invest in some great deals, but that will empower a thousand other investors in their own right. That will help others build VC firms, that will help to lobby for new policies, that will build the ecosystem around them, and that will completely redefine the characteristics of investing in African markets. 
Eunice, you've seen this yourself. I think to a large extent, something that's a really unfortunate detriment is we don't see as much collaboration across African markets as there could be. Sitting in Texas, I can potentially reach out to someone in New York or to someone in Palo Alto and strike an agreement for a partnership. And yet, people sitting in neighboring countries such as Benin, for example, and Nigeria often never even interact together, whether it comes to the startup space or otherwise. So we're really working to change that and our programs are doing that. As we speak, we've had participants or fellows as we call them from over 30 different African countries take part in DreamVC programs to date. And in the two years we've run the programs, we've had more than 2,000 applicants go through even to our first stage, applying to hopefully be the next ecosystem builders, investors, and funders of tomorrow. For us, we can only work with ever so many, but we do hope to make sure that that interest continues to grow. The African startup space is just the tip of the iceberg, and we think there's so much more that can be done. So the way that we run these programs is we really pack in a lot of content there by giving people the intellectual capital they need, the knowledge of VC and the private equity industry and everything around it, but also the social capital, connecting them to fund managers, connecting them to investors, to angels, to builders all across the African continent so that someone going into the program as the most introverted individual imaginable still leaves it with an amazing Rolodex of connections some great friends they can tap into all over the continent and contacts in our global fellow network that will only grow in due time. Wow, that's amazing. I think as you're speaking, I'm trying to figure out, like I'm, I'm thinking in my mind and I'll ask this question afterwards. But the first one that I want to ask is, what is a success, like give me a success story example, right? For somebody that is out of being like, yeah, like that's a great story, Mark, but I don't think that could be me. Um, what would be some success stories that you have seen come out of the Dream VC program um, for young Af entrepreneurs or just young Africans trying to break into VC? Yeah, I mean, I think I can give you a couple of examples. And I think it's best to understand that it's not just a solo channel of success. We don't define yeah. success as an individual comes to us. We brainwash them into being the best ever VC analyst that has ever been built. We launch them into a firm and that's exactly the only thing they want to be. That's, I think, something that really differentiates us from most other programs or communities that focus on training working professionals. We really want the community to be the first and main benefit they get out of this. And that's why when they come in, we tell them very transparently, look, we know what we can do for you, but it's your goals that we're working towards, not our goals. We're not going to channel you into something. We're going to help you achieve your goals, whatever they may be. That means that we see people coming in, for example, for our junior program, the Launcher to VC program, often with a goal of specifically either understanding how to work with the VC space or understanding how to get a role in the venture capital world. And we've seen many outcomes. Take, for instance, Davidson, the CEO of Hostel.ng in Nigeria. He came into the program hoping to understand how the VC world works. He's a founder. He sees himself potentially investing on the side at some point, and he wants to use his position as a founder to find deals for other funds, to scout for others, and to understand how to deal with investors. At the end of the day, he wants to build a venture-backed startup. Well, now it's been several months since he graduated his program. He came into the program. He's now venture-backed. He's left the program understanding how VCs work. He now has some VCs even asking him for introductions of particular founders that he would recommend. And he's got backing from some of the best investor angels based out of Nigeria. Investors such as Tommy Davis, for example. Which to me is a good indication that not only does he now understand how to deal with investors and keep investors happy, but he also understands how to be and work in the shoes of an investor. 
But that's a bit of an unusual story. I think a more usual one would be a story of someone like Blessing, for example, to bring the story a bit closer to home. Blessing is a participant, or a fellow of DreamBC that we had in 2021. She came to us with an amazing background in knowledge, in community building, in marketing, and in taking a message and going and carrying that message across. But she really didn't understand how to work with the venture capital world. And we really tapped into her strength and tailored the curriculum to her strength so that even though she was learning everything else in the same way as all the other fellows, all of our individual sit-downs, all of the one-on-ones, all of the career coaching we provide in these programs was tailored towards enhancing what is really her best foot forward. And look at her now. She's working with the Gym Capital. I'm sure the, and our listeners are envious of where she sits. She's gone on and exited the program and straight into an amazing role at an emerging fund with a fund manager that's very focused on building these things right from the get-go. Branding, yeah. communications, and having a clear brand that resonates with that African voice that she so wanted to do but didn't get a chance to earlier. So really, I think it's many success stories that can talk on and on and on about them. I think I do arguably too much about our fellows, <laughs> but um, I'm really proud of what we achieve, and I'm really proud every time a fellow reaches out to us and says, like, Mark, Cindy, my co-founder, I'm... I'm here now, I got into this role, and it's really all because of you guys. Or this would not have been possible without without you guys, and it really warms my heart. It's kind of one of the things that keeps us going. No, I love that. And I love how you mentioned that, you know, everybody comes from an unconventional background. I mean, even myself, right? The typical fund manager that, you know, launches and grows a VC fund uh, usually has private equity or venture capital or has worked at another firm or, you know, come from a finance background. And I was just a startup founder. I was just an operator. Um, and I was like, I'm going to launch the fund. And it's so funny you mentioned Blessing. And when we were going to launch our fund, I was like, like, it's like Blessing was the right opportunity at the right time. Because I got into the fund saying my purpose is build community build awareness right and she came from that background and a little bit of knowledge of what how the vc world works coming out of dream vc was the perfect fit um so is there's really no one size fit all um for anybody trying to break into the space all right so i also know that you have a wealth of knowledge just around the african ecosystem as a whole and I want us to, you know, drive a little bit away from the Green VC space um, and just look at the African ecosystem. Over the past couple of years, let's say five years, what trends have you seen become predominant um, across Africa? Yeah, I mean, I think I'll touch on probably three or four that really come to mind that I think are really, really important, but that might seem somewhat trivial for us, perhaps sitting in the UK, in Europe, and Singapore, and the US, but which have really been changing lives and potentially changing the future of the continent at large. Now, it might sound very grandiose here, but hear me out, I assure you, I'm not going to come up with something ridiculous. I think the first thing that I need to note, and this is something we see quite literally with our eyes, it's something I've experienced every single year when I've been traveling and working on the continent, is a rising global internet penetration, which is very visibly reflected across the continent. Now, Africa is famous for having some very unique African solutions to African problems. For example, even in the UK, if I leave the big cities and I go into the countryside, I will have no internet, no data, and no ability to call someone, which is ridiculous. 
but being based anywhere across the continent, I can access things like USSD, satellite codes, and the ability to use um, USSD technology to even make transactions or pay in particular countries. Despite that, something that's always been, in my opinion, a hindrance to the true technical revolution that we've been discussing happening on the continent in the last few years is the fact that such a large part of the continent still doesn't have access to regular, high-quality, accessible internet. It's almost as much an infrastructure need as payments, as roads, as the transport networks that we normally associate with the fundamental layer necessary for a thriving ecosystem. Well, that internet penetration is nowhere near the scarce 20, 30, 40% penetration we've seen historically mentioned by you know, world global health organizations that look at Africa. Today, in many African countries, 5G internet is already a reality. We already see a couple of countries that have plugged into fiber optics. We see a growing internet penetration across rural areas. And this has been amazing because this has enabled essentially in one generation, in less than 20 years time, an extra 500 million people to become potential digital consumers. It would be the same as if we just replicated the entirety of the European continent and said, this is a new consumer base. So that's something to be really excited about. But that's just one thing. Beyond that, I'm seeing an increase in cross-border activity, trading, finance, collaborations, whether that's driven by the African Union or more widely by a desire to have more cross-cultural collaboration. And this whole idea of tech as a reasonable and acceptable career. I think it's a cliche, but unfortunately, it's a very accurate one. And as a first-gen immigrant to this as well, I can attest that most immigrant parents anywhere around the world have this idea, you know, lawyer, doctor, engineer as the only career that you can ever hold because these are the only careers that will always exist. Now, I don't know if that's true or not, but quite often they've been right. But what they haven't included in this before is the idea of a software engineer or programmer. And that is changing. I have many friends from all across West Africa, Central Africa, East Africa, who speak to me somehow in amazement. And they're like, I honestly don't know what happened. But, you know, one year my dad was telling me I'm a failure because I work at some tech company that's selling like digital kittens. And the next day he's asking me, how can he learn how to code? That is not a perceptional change that happens quickly. And in Europe, it definitely didn't happen in one generation. Techies have always been sort of the outcast part of society. And they still, even today in 2023, isn't a big tech culture in Europe on anywhere near the same scale as it exists in the US or in Canada. It's always been something that's considered a secondary industry to services. And yet, in countries like Nigeria, in countries like Cameroon, in countries like Kenya and South Africa, what I'm seeing is an actual societal adoption of tech as a viable career path. They're seeing that you can get upskilled, you can learn how to program, you can learn how to develop things and actually earn you know, top tier income, whether that's working domestically, working internationally, traveling around. And that's really changing society as we know it. But for us, that's really exciting because more programmers means a lot more people who can build digitally enabled products. And what that means is suddenly the ecosystem is that much more capable of launching the next 100 or 200 multi-million dollar businesses without the need for enormous investment to get that off the ground. Wow. I mean, I, I don't think you could have said it any better, right? Like people keep asking me, um, where do you think, you know, the African ecosystem will be over the next, you know, five, 
eight, 10 years. And I keep saying, just look at India, right? Like simple example, just in 2014, India had eight unicorns. Eight years, eight and a half years, fast forward, they have 105 unicorns, right? I've been in the US for the last 11 years. Probably 10 years, like over the last 10 years, like not thinking of the last year, when you wanted a software engineer, where did you go? You went to India, right? But then India has become so expensive over the last couple of years that people are looking for alternatives. Africa being one of the biggest ones right now, where they are going out there and looking for software engineers. In fact, that was my introduction to the African tech ecosystem. I was looking for software engineers across the African continent. So, and where are we today? We have about seven, eight unicorns. I'm not sure what the number is. Um, right now on the continent, I'm like, if you are not paying attention to Africa, some of the biggest unicorns you've lost of, on, on all of these other emerging markets that have been up and coming, like you'll be losing on the African market. And that's just like one phase. Like there's so many amazing things happening that it's only a matter of time before you're like, man, I wish I knew. Anyway. I, I think it's, it's <laughs> honestly one of the biggest macroeconomic trends that is almost impossible to ignore. It doesn't matter if you take the population picture out of the window, the interconnectedness picture out of the window, the tech adoption out of the window. People talk about things historically as, a, oh, I wish I knew about this happening. I wish there was information about this. I wish I could have known about the trend, the Great Depression, the Asian financial crisis, the introduction of China to the global world. Well, people didn't because mass information and social media wasn't out there. Well, it is yeah. now. It's not a new picture. And I think, Eunice, you and I and many others have been speaking about this for quite some time. It's not new to us. We've seen that potential. And it's definitely something that's very, very visible as mm -hmm. potentially something that could really explode. A hundred yeah. unicorns in one country in India. But how many can be achieved across 54 ecosystems, which are growing, arguably even faster than the Indian subcontinent? Yeah. I can't even imagine. Yeah, definitely. So let's, I'm just curious, like what are you, if, what are you bullish on when you think about the African continent or the VC space or the tech ecosystem right now? Like what do you think will probably explode? Like right now, like FinTech is big. We've seen a little, you know, a little, how do you even say, like a little decrease in the number of FinTechs being funded, but like it's still dominating. And this is just like one simple example, but like what do you think is really going to explode over the next couple of years? I mean, I think you said it, FinTech is super, super important and it remains incredibly important as it's part of the critical infrastructure needed for African markets. But, and the but is the, is the key word here, so are logistics, so is edtech, so is healthcare, and so is anything else that is what I call an infrastructural sector. Now, this is a bit of an arbitrary term, but I believe there are sectors upon which the economy is built. You can't achieve the ideal of working for the future of healthcare, for delivering super advanced blockchain solutions or developing new GPT-4 technology, for example, in artificial learning or machine learning when we haven't solved some of the basic things. And the basic That's things, in my saying. opinion, I mean, I think I agree. It's not like a unique concept, but I think the basic things are payments and fintech, movement, transport and logistics, knowledge and edtech, health, longevity and healthcare, and really importantly, data. 
Now, I think when we sit in again in the UK or China or in Australia, it might seem like data is something which you have too much of. We all complain about how can we control our data, have privacy of our data, but you go into some other markets and you realize it's really the opposite. If you want to know what an individual smallholder farmer thinks about growing a particular uh, uh, herb, for example, in Kumasi in Ghana or in Kaduna State in Nigeria, how are you going to get that? ChatGPT is not going to have the answer. Google's not going to have the answer. And neither are the market research specialists who are charging you enormous amounts of funding, but uh, of costs, but not really giving you the answer. Sometimes data needs to be collected, normalized, aggregated, and processed first. And once that data exists, then you open up so many new markets. I've seen multiple startups on the continent struggle, for example, because they're almost ahead of their time. Startups in spaces like the electronic health records, startups in spaces like interconnected banking, embedded finance. These industries can propel African countries to compete with Singapore, Hong Kong and New York on the technology and the rapid evolution of finance, as an example. But we can't be thinking just that far in the future without solving some of these infrastructural issues, which are just bridges or stepping stones to get into something bigger. But that stepping stone is an enormous funding opportunity. Being the logistics platform upon which thousands of others are built, that's how you arrive at being FedEx or DHL or UPS, which are all billion dollar companies. And I think there's going to be certainly billion dollar companies that appear in these critical infrastructural spaces in the coming few years. I think it's already starting to become evident. We've seen this whole splurge of funding moving potentially beyond FinTech into other critical sectors in late 2022. So. I think 2023 is the year that's going to really evidence that trend. No, I mean, I completely agree. Um, when I look at my portfolio company for my angel investment, it had lots of fintech, probably 80%. And then I look at my portfolio company for my phone and I have logistics, I have mobility, I have healthcare, I have um, marketplaces, uh, definitely a lot of fintech still, but there's just so much diversity and... Um, I was just speaking with one of my uh, colleagues in the, in the just like investor space, and I was just like, man, like, how do you feel? And maybe this is a question for you and I, but how do you feel about investing in competitors? <laughs> like, not necessarily competitors, but like, for example, in the healthcare. Over the last year, I have, we have come across probably over 2,500 decks, right? Um, lots of healthcare startups doing very similar things and usually it's like on-demand um you know doctors or having making it easy to have access to medical you know devices or drugs right um and even though all of them have different strength um it kind of feel like it's an add-on or like an extra future right so how do you do, especially when you're investing in the early stage? And I don't know if this is the right question for you, but it's just something that popped out of my mind. Um, and I was just like, man, it, it, it is an interesting time to be in, um, investing, especially in the early stage on the continent, because there are so many opportunities that are arising um, and it can be difficult to make, to know if you're making the right choice. <laughs> No, I think it's a really, really awesome question because it's something that I've actually discussed at some point in the DreamVC Fellowship. Shameless plug, apply for the <laughs> fellowship if you want to learn more. But no, in reality, I think it's something where 
uh, it really is a question of investor ethics first and foremost. Mm -hmm. And it's not a question of it is ethical to invest in one way and it isn't ethical to invest in another way. It's a question of being someone who is able to see the situation in context and appreciate it in context. Over the last few years, I've worked within about six or seven VC funds, and most of them have had some portfolio assets that had a crossover. They were both mm -hmm. in the telemedicine market, both focused on one part of the world. They were both in the fintech plat platform as a service market, focused on the same part of the world. But I think what people really need to understand is even more so than in developed markets, in markets that are undercapitalized, it's not a zero sum game. It's not a case of, hey, I'm investing in this competitor, which means I'm taking away money from investing in you. It means I think that what you're building is so big and the opportunity is so big that I want to double down on that opportunity. And what I would really advise for founders, perhaps listening to this, is don't assume that if I, for example, or Eunice or another investor backs another startup in your field that I've forgotten about you. More likely than not, that means more of my personal time is now going to be focused on this sector because now I'm doubly exposed. I'm doubly interested. I'm really saying I am so confident this sector is going to do well that I want two, three, four investments in the same space. Think about it more as a way of leveraging on that rather than competing on that element. And you arrive at some really interesting synergies. An example I'll give is I was working at a fund that was focused on Central Eastern Europe a couple of years ago, and they had several portfolio assets in the enterprise sales sector. Some of them were working on the CRM space. Some of them were working on the enterprise resource planning space. And the startups were competing with each other. The CRM startup wanted to expand into the ERP space. The ERP startup wanted to expand into the CRM space. But what they managed to do is the VC actually acted almost like a middleman in that process. They put them together. They gave them transparency. They were both planning to expand into the same space. And they thought, huh. What if we had a joint venture in key markets? What if we leveraged on the relative insights we had from both of these cases? The VC in this case didn't favor one, they didn't favor the other, but they actually said, look, there's useful skill sets that you both have and you still can both get a share of the market. Both of them expanded into those markets successfully. Both of them are now healthy competitors, but they've actually been collaborating and working on joint projects together and that's helped both of them scale successfully. Otherwise, both would have spent a lot of money on hiring consultants, experts, advisors to help them understand that market and it would have been a waste of funds that have been used better. So really, I think it's not always as much of a, oh my gosh, we investors are the bad guys kind of story yeah. for trying to say that it's not that bad, but it really isn't always that bad. What's bad is when there's not that communication. If the founders don't communicate with each other, if the founders don't communicate with the VC and if the VC doesn't communicate with the founder, that's when that trust is broken. I think we reiterate this point again and again and again in our community, even outside of our programs. Investor founder fit is just as important as the founder or product market fit. If you find yeah. an investor that's not in your corner, that is going to be hell for you and hell for that investor for the next few years. But if you find someone who will really go the extra mile, who will be in the trenches with you, who is going to be shouting about you, who is going to be talking about you, who is going to be finding you introductions and helping you solve problems, that might be that one small thing that you are missing between where you are now and your dream of being that multi-million, multi-billion dollar company, whatever you see it happening. Okay, I love it. And we usually try to keep this podcast under 30 minutes, but 35 minutes. But uh, this is just, just one question that I always ask and I got to ask this to you, Mark. Leave the African Dream podcast is all about... Um, 
first, you know, a lot of people that I invite on the podcast are, to some extent, living the African dream because they're working in the African space. They're doing amazing things on the continent. But, right, we always want more. That's just the nature of human beings. And when I mean dream, some people might interpret that the wrong way. This is this is thing in the US where we say the American dream, right? Like if you can dream it and you can walk towards it, it is possible. And I just feel like every single one of us has something to contribute in that African dream. So, Mark, what is your African dream? <laughs> well, thanks for asking. I think it's a pretty unique question. Um... I guess on my end, I, I think that answer does come to mind though. And it's really around what we're doing, what we're working on and why we're working so hard, why I'm taking calls at 1am and I'm up throughout the year and we don't take as many breaks as I wish we would. It's really because I believe that the potential of the investor ecosystem across Africa is really where the biggest difference can happen on the infrastructural level. Helping more investors break into the VC world, helping more investors launch funds in the VC world, helping new people break into the venture capital industry or the industries besides it to make that world better. For me, it's almost a personal issue. I might not be African. I wasn't born on the continent, but I've seen what a struggling startup ecosystem looks like and what can happen in disconnected markets like Russia, like Ukraine, like parts of Eastern Europe. I really want to see that self-sufficient investor and founder ecosystem exist across Africa that exists in the US, that exists in the UK. A set of thriving, interconnected African countries that push towards this technocratic governance, making investing and building more accessible. I think that would be a dream reality where I want to live in that dream. And I'm working really hard to make sure that others can live that dream as well. Amen to that. Um, great. Well, this was Leave the African Dream podcast. Mike, I know you have a short announcement for our listeners listening today. Um, and I will let you make that announcement before we close the podcast. <laughs> Thank you, Eunice. And I think it's really on the back of everything we've said that you've heard it, you know it, you've probably understand it deeply by now that Africa needs a lot more investors, a lot more builders, a lot more founders involved in the entire space. And I really want to make sure that we are someone playing a step in your journey there, especially that journey into the venture capital world. In 2023, DreamVC will be running new investor training programs. They are larger, they are more packed than ever before. And it's looking like it's going to be a really great year. In spring, very soon, we're going to be announcing that our applications will be open and we'd love to see many of you apply. We even have financial aid available if you can't afford the tuition because that's how much we care about making sure that you go and achieve that dream of really building the investor ecosystem. And hopefully we can play a small part in helping you do that. Awesome, awesome. Well, this was Leave the African Dream podcast with Mark Lanner, co-founder of DreamVC. Um, it was such a pleasure having you, Mark, on the podcast today. And until next time, I hope everybody has a wonderful day.